Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast. Our goal is to help technical professionals accelerate their career progression, increase their job satisfaction, and bring you the advice we wish had been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at VJourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Corty, at NetworkNerd underscore. We both work in the tech industry with backgrounds in IT operations and sales engineering. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. Thanks for being with us for episode 258. This week, you'll get to hear part two of a discussion with Nicholas Arone. He's a senior manager in product management for VMware, focusing on the ARIA automation platform. If you missed part one of our discussion with Nicholas in episode 257, it's well worth a listen. From an early age, Nicholas wanted to do something in technology, but he wasn't quite sure what that should be. He even wanted to work for IBM and later achieve that goal, gaining experience with databases and project management. Nicholas told the story of implementing Agile and Scrum methodologies on a specific team within IBM and how that spread and they achieved some really great things as a result. He also told us a little bit about the difference between a product owner and a product manager. Well, this week in part two of the discussion, you're going to hear about the difference between a product manager and a technical product manager. And when we say technical, how technical does one need to be to be a technical product manager? Also, when you're thinking about hiring product managers based on specific software products and the problems they solve, what kind of person do you want for the job and how does that change depending on the type of product you're building? In this discussion, you'll get to hear what it really takes to walk away after a long tenure at a specific company. Nicholas will tell the story of leaving IBM to pursue a new challenge and how we need to have a mindset of adaptability. What does that really mean? Let's get to part two of our discussion with Nicholas Arone and find out. We didn't say it before, but I'm operating under the assumption that if someone is a product manager, they are an individual contributor who does not have role power and authority over the software engineers helping to work on the product. Is that an accurate statement in what you've seen? So I'll clarify. There's certainly IC roles in PM, right? You can have even senior PMs that are individual contributors, right? I happen to have about four PMs that are on my team. I also do have PM responsibility. So you can look at that respect. Like I am working with other PMs, dotted line, if you will. I have PMs reporting to me. And then I also have certain responsibilities as far as services and products that I'm specifically responsible for. And the reason I'm also passionate about that is, and probably the reason that the Nerd Journey podcast exists, right, is we need to be pouring back and investing into others. So whether it be developers, executives, whatever it is, right? I feel like PM's this enigma. Everyone's like, well, how'd you get into PM? 
And you hear some great stories of how people got to there, right? Some people are going off and getting certifications and trying to break in. Some people are moving out of development into PM. Some people are coming in maybe from the field, being like a solutions engineer, and they're trying to really help because they saw problems that they thought they'd be better suited to bring in and closer to the product rather than just trying to solution them on the sales side. So there's all these different walks, but you absolutely will have your individual contributor roles, but then you'll have your, your product leaders uh, at various levels that are setting strategy and trajectory. Got it. How technical should a product manager be? I know that's kind of a trick question because we've heard product manager titles. We've also I've also seen people who are technical product managers. What's your read on the difference between those and maybe how technical one should be if you're going to do it for a software product? So I'll start off with a flippant statement. They just have to be technical enough. But in all seriousness, I've worked with PMs, um, and I'll do the pros and cons, right? I've worked with PMs that they will tell you, I'm not technical at all. But you know what? They could communicate requirements. They can work with engineering. They could talk to stakeholders. And they would sometimes tell you, yeah, I said the words, but I'm not sure I totally get it. Now, in reality, depending on the complexity of the technology, we know you need to be technical to some extent. So the, the real answer is, I guess it depends. There's also an ongoing educational thing. You've got to learn technology. Just think about in our daily lives, right? People with the amount of technology that we're exposed to, the adoption of cell phones, right? That evolution, right? It may have happened from when I remember the old Motorola bricks in the 90s to, you know, the old Windows phones and, you know, the not so, you know, smartphone in the mid 2000s to now iPhones and, and Androids alike. It happened over a much longer period of time, but people have adapted to that. And, and a job is the same way. You need to adapt, you need to grow. And if you're in a certain role, I am sure hopeful that you are picking up some things because if you're not, then that just means you're not absorbing stuff. And I've worked with very technical PMs. The only thing that I always caution about working with extremely technical PMs is their ability to sometimes want to go solution over the developer. And that is, for me, a very hard line because the engineers exist for a reason. They are architects, and, we, and I won't go into the difference between a coder, a programmer, a developer, an engineer, right? There are all these same terms that we tend to mash together, but there are certain subtle nuances to, to the roles there. But all that to say is the engineers are there to build the solution. You provide the use case, the outcome that you're expected as a PM, and that's where that collaboration. It doesn't mean that you can't say, well, I would do it this way, or I was thinking about this, or would this make sense? But at the end of the day, from the technical implementation perspective, I wholeheartedly believe that the ownership is the engineer's responsibility for delivering that, and it's the PM's responsibility for getting the information there and then validating it. And there may be some iteration there. There may be miscommunication. You got to work through that as you do in any relationship uh, internally or externally. It's, it's interesting because I think we use the word technical and there's an implication on what that means. So in this case, when we say how technical do you need to be to be a PM, the implication is how much of a coder, developer, architect, clean code person do you need to be in order to be a PM? But there's other aspects to being technical, right? It's like maybe you're an expert at the actual product. Like maybe you came from 
using the product or solutioning, being part of the solution architecture where the product is a component of another solution. So a little bit more customer facing, or maybe you're technical in that you're an expert at all the different skills of being a PM, a product manager. You have deep experience being a completely successful product manager in a completely different company that doesn't have anything to do, the products doesn't have, don't have anything to do with the products that you happen to be working on now. We say technical, and we need to define technical probably, right? It's like saying cloud, right? <laughs> yeah. Who's cloud? No, I, I think that's a fair point, John. I think when you look at it, there are job postings out there for technical product manager. But first, let's understand what technical is or, or whatever word, right? Let's, let's normalize that for the conversation and the context that we're talking about it. Is it technical because you're expected as PM to get into writing some technical documents uh, using technical terms? Are you looking to create architectural diagrams as a precursor to having an architect or a head engineer do that? Like it varies, right? Depends on the company, the expectation, uh, you know, the people involved. And then you have folks that are just PMs that, you know, kind of cover a, an umbrella of different things and have different skills. And what I've always found in my career is you do and you gravitate towards what you need to do. I tend to also like to find gaps and come up with solutions, whether that be automation, processes. Um, it's not process for process sake, but when I see a problem, even internally, if we're not communicating well, if we're not working effectively, we have to kind of look at that because if we're not healthy internally, we can't you know, deliver on basically our commitments to the business and drive drive what needs to be driven from the business perspective. So there is a certain bit of a nuance in saying, well, can you clarify that for me? Like, what do you mean by technical PM? Or what do you think a technical PM is probably even a better way to ask the question to people? Yeah, that's, that's so fascinating. And maybe when you're talking to a recruiter about that role, maybe they do or don't know the answer to that question, you know, depending on how many of these types of roles and and how familiar they are in the relationship with the hiring manager um, or even the team. Like I, I just thought of another one, you know, which is like if the product is, you know, centered around like a specific like protocol, like, uh, okay, so if you have a networking product, you know, maybe technical product manager in that role means that you need to be extremely technical around the protocols around networking and not necessarily like somebody who is extremely technical on the language that is being used to write the product. So there's you know, yet another one, right? Yeah. And within that, there is a hiring style, right? I'm going to kind of, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of stay it that way. There is, do I have a role in a technology or a product? And let's just assume in this case, it's something that's new, right? Like, it's not something emerging. It's not something like from a startup perspective, but it's something that's kind of a known quantity in the industry, right? One, some hiring managers would address it and say, well, listen, I know there's a lot of people that know this out there. Like there's maybe not be tens of hundreds of thousands, but there's definitely thousands out there, right? And so I have enough of a pool of potential candidates that I can go interview and I can be a little bit more selective. That's one way of hiring, right? Skill for skill and, and so forth. There is then the, well, if I find the right person, that person could come up to speed, right? So it then becomes personality, skill sets, previous experience. That's valid. But then you also have this other 
you know, kind of third category and where you're trying to figure out, well, this is something new, right? There, let's say you're trying to build a new product. Let's say, I don't know, something like AI, where AI was not the buzzword. Or I remember reading job postings, and this is no joke for certain technologies. I think Java was one of them, right? And this was like in the early, maybe mid-2000s. Like, oh, they want 20 years of Java. And you're like, well, Java hasn't been around for 20 years. So I think that also goes to your point, John, of the reality of sometimes I don't want to pick on recruiters or whatever, but it's really sanitizing that hiring rack and really understanding being realistic. Hey, I want someone with 20 years experience in something that's only existed for 10 years, and I want to pay them that of an entry you know, first-year grad. You're like, well, we have to be more realistic here. So I would also encourage folks looking at any role, but even in PM roles, to really read through the description. And it's fair the same way. And I'm not sure how many of your viewers or listeners look at it this way. And I had to be reminded about this. Just as much as you're interviewing for a job and they're interviewing you, you should be interviewing them, right? And if something doesn't make sense to you, yeah, you may be like, oh man, I really wanted that job or I wanted a job. But you may have dodged a bullet in the fact that if they can't articulate the role that they're hiring for, or I've heard this too. Oh yeah, it's very notorious at my company, X, Y, or Z, wherever it is, where someone will get hired for this and like three weeks later, like their job you know, expectations. Now that's not the norm luckily, but you want to go in with the full expectations of what am I being hired to do for a number of reasons. One, can I do the job? Am I willing to do the job? Two, is that in line with the compensation for the industry and, and with other roles similar to it? And then ultimately, can I be measured by it? Or how am I going to be measured by it? Because I'm assuming if you're getting the job, you're looking for aspirations. Is this a career opening opportunity for me? Because again, unless you're doing part-time or you have other reasons and you don't look for career growth, maybe because you're just in a place where, you know what, I just, I'm, I'm comfortable for now and I'll see how this goes. You probably are thinking about the next step as you should in your career. Um, so can I be measured in accordance or understand how I'm going to be measured? So that way, when it comes time for review, I can say, well, one, I'm glad to hear you know, what you think of my skills and what you acknowledge. Let me tell you here, this is where I'm doing well, or here's where I see I bring value to the business. Hey, is there anything else, any areas where I can be working on, right? You want it to be that dialogue because no one loves the game of, Hey, I meet one-on-one -on -one weekly with my boss or whatever. And then, you know, at some point in the future, it's like, yeah, we're letting you go. And you're like, what? Or, hey, your performance review is really low. And you're like, I don't get it. You've been telling me all along I'm doing good. Now, to your point earlier, John, maybe we need to define the word good in that case. But hopefully that's one of those wor words that in itself, <laughs> everyone understands as universal. But it's really about that idea. And where I think earlier in my career, they don't teach you this in, in, in university or anywhere. How am I caring for my career? Because I'll tell you right now, you will meet some good people along the way. And there's people that I've met along my 20 plus years. I'm still friends with them. I've worked at multiple companies with them. They've been a referral for me. I've been a referral. For me. So that's that whole concept of networking. And good people want to work with other good people that want to keep working with those people, even if you're doing something different, because there's also like that extended work family that you're building. So I think it's really important that it's good to know that there's people you can count on to help you with your career. But if you find yourself, I'll call it an island where you're in a situation where you're kind of, you don't know anyone in the company, but you took the opportunity or 
some life event happened and you had to take the job, that you know how to market yourself. You know the value that you bring to the company and making sure that they also know that you know. Can I ask in that context, your transition from IBM to your next role, what did that look like? You mentioned that it was to find new challenges. Is that something you just talked about interview process and and judging roles? Is that something that you learned um, through a positive experience or neutral experience or negative experience in that transition? In that particular experience, maybe a little bit all the above. So, so one, the reason I left was, as as I always say, it's not my my grandfather's IBM, right? And that's fine. Like that's not a dig on them. Businesses evolve; they have to. They have to adapt. Technology evolves. Strategy evolves. It just from where I was, I was at kind of this crossroads where I saw where things were going and maybe where I had a future and I could keep doing the same thing, or I was going to step out and take a risk. And it was jarring because at that point I had been at IBM out of university for 11 years, so more you know more than half of my career. And then trying to step out, it was hard. But I went ahead, threw some resumes out had you know, a generally positive experience. Even up until I turned in my resignation, there was a sense of apprehension in field. Here is a company that I've known, I've been with. They have been kind of an extension of my family. I moved where, you know, for IBM. So I'm out of state and you know, luckily I had my wife and she was really supportive and all that. And at that point I had my, my uh, first two kids. So, you know, you're thinking also as a family, you're like, is this right? Like, should I be doing that? But it comes again to that change, right? And you should never look at it and say, well, I knew I shouldn't have done that because I wound up, you know, three years later getting laid off or it's, it's not the experience I hope for. My hope for people is that you look for the value that that next opportunity brought you. Yeah, because most of the times I look back, there's no such thing as a perfect company. And a a saying that I adopted is the grass isn't always greener on the other side. It's just a different shade. And and the reflection on that is there's this notion that depending on why you're leaving your company, right? People leave for an opportunity, pay bump, title, um, an experience to go do something new, a startup or whatever. Those are valid reasons. Some people get disenfranchised with their current management or, you know, specifically the direct report. Just know why you're leaving and what you're leaving for. And then that experience that you have has to be balanced with, well, at some point, if you're like constantly leaving and turning over jobs, you're like, I'm just going to say it. It's probably not them. It's you. And so I try and take an optimistic look at saying, yeah, no place is perfect. But here, I met this person here. or I met this group of people. Or I was able to achieve this outcome above and beyond what anyone else thought. Or I got accolades for this. And again, it's best understood looking back, right? The philosopher, you know, life must be lived forward, but only best, you know, only understood uh, looking back. And that's how our career is. You can have a trajectory and a plan, but you better be okay with change and you better be okay with adaptability or else you're going to be really frustrated. And that's probably just more of a general statement on life, but in a career, because you're trying to hit targets, right? Especially us type A personalities. You want to hit a certain title. You want to hit a certain dollar amount, a bonus amount, whatever it is. For everyone, it's slightly different, right? Pay may be at the top of one person's list, but titles for another one. Work-life balance may be at the top of someone else. We all have our list, whether they're written down or not. And I would encourage 
people to write those down because when you're weighing multiple jobs too, it may not be as obvious. And if you really think about it, you know, if it was just money, it'd be easy, right? You're like, hey, highest dollar amount, you win, you, you know, you're who I'm going with. But we know the reality is that that's not always the case. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think we've talked on this podcast before about process versus outcomes. So there's things when you're swishing jobs or doing a job search that you can't control. I think you mentioned, hey, you go in for a job and sometimes it, you know, hopefully this doesn't happen to us often. Like three weeks later, they're like, hey, everything about your job is changing. Everything that we hired you to do like that isn't valid anymore. And this is just an organizational thing that we didn't know about. You can't control that. Like all you can control is the process that you went into the job search with in the interview process with. They could just be lying, right? Like, oh, we have a great culture and, you know, we take care of our people and, and you get there and it's like, oh, what they regard as a great culture is I regard as toxic, you know, and that's just a difference of opinion or again, maybe it's just lying. <laughs> so yeah. those are things you can't control. And from a process perspective, the the other thing I will say is, and, and I'll, I'll use kind of an analogy, but if you remember back in the day before there was core math and all that, when a teacher would tell you, listen, I want you, I want you to show me all your work, right? I want, I want to know how you got there because even if the answer's wrong, yes, that's wrong. But if you can show someone, well, this is how I achieved it. Someone might say, well, yeah, you got the wrong answer, but I understand your thought process. And I will say in what we do and specifically applying to product management, it's that way, right? It's built on assumptions, like the market we're going after, the demographic we're going over, the problem that that market may have or that market exists or doesn't exist yet today. So it's really helpful if you can think through it and not just say, well, we're going there because I want to or because I was told to. No one ever gets motivated, first of all, by saying, I've never inspired anyone by saying that we're going to do this because that person said so. Even if that person told me we're doing it because of that, I've asked enough questions that I put together a story because people are compelled by stories. They like missions, right? It's why people like playing video games. It's because you have a purpose. You have a, you have a focus, right? You're going to set out, whether it be individually and like first person shooter, or you're doing some group game together, RPG, you have a mission, right? You have a focus and a purpose. And we live for a particular purpose. And the other thing that an early manager told me on in my career is make sure that you are not just living to work, that your work is what provides for you, right? So it's this idea that you work to live, not live to work. And I think that's very important because we talk about work-life balance. You know, there's all this stuff about the four-day work week and studies that are being done. And I'm sure that's all good and well, but at the end of the day, we are here for a purpose. Everyone has to understand what their purpose and their value is that they are bringing. And to your earlier point about being in a job and you know, bait and switch or not, it is your mindset. And it's very easy, especially like in companies when there's layoffs or restructures, it is very personal because how many hours do we probably all spend at our job? Outside of our family, and I have the blessing as, as well as others um, before and even uh, post-pandemic, to work remote or work in a hybrid experience. But back in the day when I was at IBM, I was in the office every day. I was there 10, 12 hours a day. I looked up one day and I said to my coworker, I said, this is probably going to sound dumb, but I think I'm spending more time with my work family or my work people than with my family. And I said that because I actually enjoyed working with the people I did, 
and it wasn't a problem. All that to say is, why are you doing what you're doing? At the end of the day, I'm here to take care of my family. I have responsibilities. I've been very blessed to be on a journey where sometimes I've loved things in my jobs and there's other points where there's been low points, right? But I tend to remember more of the high moments. Even when there's things I probably gripe to people about about certain jobs, in the end, whether it be the way my brain works or the optimism that I have, it's always a, hey, remember when we did this? Remember that we were able to do that? Remember that product launch? Those are the moments that I take with me. And that's helped grow my career and I think sell me for the next opportunity and then prove to myself, yeah, you can do it. And you're, and, and you're still growing. It's this evolution of adaptability. No one gets in and works a 30-year career and does the same thing, especially in our space, because the technology and the world around us is just changing so much, so much faster. So I want to pick apart something you said there, just make a comment. This idea of showing your thought process or sharing your thought process with someone of, hey, maybe I didn't get to this goal, but here's how I thought through it and why I ended up where I ended up. I actually think that is a great thing to use as a strategy when you go into interviews. Oh, I've never done that specifically, but if I was going to do it today, I've done this thing before and I might go in this direction and then I would try this, this, and this. That, that could be a great way to answer that, but by sharing your thought processes, it is a form of what John and I have referred to as showing your work. And I think that you can show your work in the interviews through showing how you think, but also this process of showing how you think things through also has a parallel in what you were saying about figuring out the value of the next job to you. What value does it bring? Why did I leave? Show your work in how you made those decisions, whether it's on paper, whether it's talking through it with a family member, because it helps you make those decisions better. But like the ability to think through it, as you said, is going to help you uh, adapt to those changes. I have no idea if what I just said made any sense, but that was what I was thinking, that there were parallels of showing your work in both areas. No, that makes total sense. And I'll just, I'll just add to, to kind of compound, I think, the importance. One, it goes back to what I said, whether it be on paper or a mental list, you know, working through when you're looking for a job or just in your career, you know, when you're making decisions, hey, should I take this new role even in the same company? Should I take this risk? What you're balancing as far as your, your priorities, your top 10 list, let's call it. The other thing it allows you to do, and it's been successful for me and I've seen for others is when you put, you know, do your your work, right? And you kind of show people or you use visual aids. When someone's like, well, I don't agree with you, right? Most of the time it's, we're having a conversation. And most of the time conversations are fine to have and people can communicate. We've been doing it for, for, for centuries now, right? But what happens is when you get into more complex things, especially around products, or you're trying to push the boundaries on things that don't exist or that are complex in nature, pictures help because you're not having to hold it all in your head. And where I'm going with this is there's been a number of times where I've worked it out and be like, well, what is this, right? And they're pointing at something that's written down or whatever. And like, well, where'd you come up with that? Well, you know, and it could be an assumption or it could be, I thought so-and-so told me this. Well, no, like that's not actually accurate. We're not doing that anymore. Or 
yeah, that, that's not our responsibility. And you quickly pull it out and be like, oh, well, okay, let's just cross that out, remove it, erase it, whatever. And again, I'm, I'm you know, making it simple in this case, but the point is, oh, okay. So if we remove that, we're on the same page, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so it really helps work through complex conversations and gets people in the same boat together because nine times out of 10, even if it's technical, even if it's engineering and what we're doing, we have really smart engineers. The engineers will figure it out. It's the people aspect of our job that's always the challenge. It's communicating information. It's getting alignment. It's what people refer to as politics. And I know a lot of people that have said, I want no business in politics. So they've stayed like an, an individual contributor, which is fine, maybe an engineer or something, because they want to be far removed from it. And I will tell you, it affects everyone at every point. But I will tell you, as you further go up the ladder, you definitely see and feel it more. And my goal as a manager is always to insulate, if you will. I don't want to say protect, but insulate so that my people, engineers and so forth can do their job because their time is most valuable because fingers on keyboard, designing, architectural diagrams, stuff like that is what ends to us getting a product out the door. And so if I can keep them focused, you know, the, the, the value of them is that much greater because they're purely engineering. Let me deal with a little bit of the politicking and so forth so that they don't have to. And that's, that's another aspect to, to consider. So after hearing that discussion, how technical do you think a product manager needs to be? I think what we can learn from that discussion is there's certainly a level of technical, but the technical part can present itself in different ways and different qualities of the candidate in question. And that tells me that we don't necessarily need experience with the product to be a product manager for it. They may not necessarily need someone who has been a user of the product in question, especially if it's a new product that's never been created before. You can't have a user of that. But if it's an existing product, for example, that's out in the market, I don't necessarily have to have experience with that product. Maybe I'm looking at being a product manager for something in the backup, recovery, data retention space and I've been someone who's built technical architectures for businesses to better their business continuity and disaster recovery plans. Well, that might make me very well suited to become a product manager for a product in that particular problem space because I'm going to know it quite well. I think it's also important to understand that the product manager, whether it's just product manager or technical product manager, you aren't the one who solves the problem of building the next piece of the product. You don't have to write the code for it. That's not an expectation. The engineers that work on the product team, they're going to do that. They're going to write the code that makes the product work. They're going to be thinking about and building the right architecture behind it so that it's performant and resilient. But what you are in charge of as the product manager, you need to be so intimate with that problem 
that you can communicate and articulate it extremely clearly to both the engineering teams that you're working with and the customers that you serve as part of that product team. Those engineers need to understand the problem the product is solving or any new features. What is that doing for my customers? What is it helping? And provide as much context as you can so that other people can solve the problem. Now, this might be a little bit harder for those of us who are quite technical and used to solving problems. I think you're just moving the problem you're solving. It's maybe not a need to be hands-on keyboard writing code or fixing this system. The problem we're solving is a problem of communication, clarity, getting people to work on the same page, being held accountable, and helping customers get value from this product. Now, for the hiring managers and recruiters out there, hopefully they're aware that this technical quality can present in different ways from different people. And hopefully the candidate, if you're thinking of applying for a product manager or a technical product manager, maybe you build a story. Just like Nicholas was talking about, he liked to build a story to provide clarity and get people on the same page. Maybe you build a story around your relatable experience of doing things that helped other people solve problems, much like you would help the engineers solve a problem as the product manager, but you don't have to solve it for them, for example. So I need to be writing my relatable experience and things on my resume and on my LinkedIn from a specific point of view and perspective so that people know I have the right experience. I really liked the idea of this mindset of adaptability. And if you think about it, Nicholas spoke about his reflection on the high moments of roles in the past and the sense of gratitude. What he was really doing is incorporating some of the wins, some of the high points in his career. And I think when you can reflect on those and do that, it gives you confidence to take a chance, especially if you're going to leave a company and go to another company. And you certainly need more confidence if you've been at a company for a long time and it's been quite a while since you've made any sort of change. Maybe that helps with the anxiety about the unknown. And I would also encourage us to think about what are the wins and high points that we had in any job where the conditions changed? You worked for a new manager. Your focus became different. The metrics of success changed. The type of project work that you were given changed. That's adaptability. You adapted to all those changes. How did you do? Were those wins in your book? Maybe you already have that mindset to a certain extent, but don't realize it. Part of this is also showing your work. We talked about writing down our thought processes when making a job decision, showing how we think. How are we thinking about this next role? What will it do for us? How will it fit within the priorities we have? How has our life adapted or changed since the last time we needed a job? Does the next thing I'm pursuing need to be completely different from what I'm doing now to fit more? within the way that I want my life to be. And I think also when we're talking about showing our thought process, showing our work to gain consensus, maybe even leveraging the visualization that Nicholas spoke about, we need to remember that probably the first thing we started with when we're trying to gain consensus from a bunch of people won't be the same. It will have to be adapted or changed at least a little bit. 
so that everyone can agree on what the final plan is. And that doesn't mean it's bad. I think that what Nicholas is encouraging us to do as we have this adaptability mindset is to expect that change will happen in pretty much every area of our jobs and overall lives. Well, I'm excited to share part three with you next week of, and the conclusion of this discussion with Nicholas Arone, where we talk more about his experience as a manager and why he chose to do that. See you then. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White at Be Journeyman for Nick Cordy at Network Nerd underscore signing off. Adios.